These may be challenging times, but have hope and listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of, except at Healthcare Untold, hosted by Barbara Ann Garcia. Welcome to Healthcare Untold, Jesse. Hi, Barbara. Thank you for having me here on Healthcare Untold. It's an honor to, to be here with you. Well, it's an honor for me. Uh, you know, I've been listening to your book and I'm just blown away, Jesse, listening to your voice as you read your book aloud. Your voice is so powerful and uh, it's made me cry. It's made me get mad. It's made me happy. Um, and, you know, the secrets that you kind of have put out uh, of your life that so many people in our communities face, and you really have shown a pathway for many. Um, and so I just really want to honor you and thank you so much for talking about your book, I Am Not Broken by Jesse Leon. So why don't you uh, give us a little bit of your reasoning for why you wrote the book, and then I hear we're going to get to listen to some of, the, some of your passage from your book. Wow, first, Barbara, I just want to say thank you. The kind words that you just said are very, very timely. Um, I got really vulnerable in writing my book and telling my story. And, and there's moments throughout the day that I question, why did I do this? And then there's other moments where, um, where I'm reminded that it was about the impact I wanted to have on individuals' lives to not give up and not give up hope in spite of how, in spite of how painful our realities can be sometimes. And so you saying what you just said, if, if anyone could see me right now, I'm smiling. I have that Kool-Aid smile. Because um, it lets me know that I'm on the right path. You and sure that, are. Um, and it means a lot. Gracias. Yes. You know, um, I'm not broken. It's just a powerful title. And it, it's funny because, and I'll talk a little bit about why I decided to write my book and, and, and tell my memoir the way that I did. Um, it was really important for me, as you mentioned, the audiobook. It was extremely important for me to read my own audiobook. Um, I knew, I mean, I put my heart and my soul into it, and all the emotions came out, and it was extremely cathartic um, and healing process for me. And the feedback that I've been getting from the audiobook is is amazing, and I can't wait for the Spanish version to come out because it got really emotional. Yeah. Um, it was really different reading the book in Spanish. Mm -hmm. It felt as if I was surrounded by my abuelitas and they were listening to me and my story and was able to do some intergenerational spiritual healing by telling the story um, in Spanish. And so, you know, I wrote the book I'm not broken, you know, which is my journey that I took to win back my life. And I know what it's like to feel alone. I know what it's like to feel broken. And, 
you know, as a teenager, I never knew if I'd finish high school, let alone graduate from Harvard and, or even write a book. And so I know I'm not the only one that's had these traumatic experiences. I'm one of many. And sadly, a lot of us, a lot of the one, a lot of people that came before us never had the opportunity to tell their story. And a lot of us still today don't get the opportunity to tell our story. So I wanted to make sure that um, that I was able to be as vulnerable and honest as I as I was to demonstrate how I was overlooked by state sanctioned programs that were intended to help people. But as a young gay Latino, or as a young Latino dealing with identity issues and not knowing where where I fell in 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 the identity spectrum, right. um, and programs that were meant to help survival to help survivors didn't help me, and I fell through the cracks. I think intentionally, and so I shouldn't have spiraled deep down the rabbit hole of addiction, suicidal thoughts, uh, continuing to be exploited as a, um, continued to be exploited sexually as a child when I turned to sex work at 14, because that's the, the, the challenge, right? Is, well, you really weren't a sex worker at 14. You're still an exploited, you're still a sexually exploited child. Mm -hmm. And so I, over the years, I've learned that I'm not the only one. I've been in recovery 29 years. I speak at conventions in recovery. I speak at community colleges. I speak at universities. And when I tell my story, there is always a line of people crying, waiting to hug me to say, thank you for telling my story. Right. And so my journey of healing and self-acceptance began with people in my community loving me as I am. And I'm hoping that my words will be a place of refuge and hope, a breath of inspiration, so that others don't feel as alone as I once did. And in telling my story that others can identify not just with the pain or the trauma or the abuse, the hope that we too can accomplish anything and that we're not in this alone. And that together we can accomplish anything, that we're, we're able to dream because for so long, those of us that um, have dealt with mental health issues, suicidal ideations, abuse and trauma, a lot of us, I know I felt that I couldn't dream anymore. That, that I couldn't achieve, I thought I was gonna die before I was 18. So I told my story to remind others that are struggling with addiction, suicidal thoughts, that we're not alone and that we too can accomplish anything. That's beautiful. Just wow, that was long. I am no, so sorry. <laughs> not at all. Are you kidding? And you know, how true How true is that? I mean, I have been in the field of addiction and uh, mental health for over 30 years. And I can't tell you how many people I've met who have gone through many of the struggles that you did and have accomplished so much in their lives. 
And you're absolutely right. The programs that are set up for communities, they're not reflective of who we are in our communities. And they, I mean, just the fact that in listening to your story that I hope you'll read a little passage about the, the therapy piece that you went through, um, you know, you could just tell the reflection you didn't see yourself or somebody that looked like you as you were trying to get your help. And At that's all. a big deal for us in our community. As we grow as a community in California, particularly, we will be and are the majority. Um, it's so important for us to um, expand the professions um, to ensure. And you're going to be helping that pathway um, because I think your book is going to be a real reflection for many who need to understand uh, our communities and what we go through in poverty and racism and oppression. So thank you, Jesse, for- No, thank you, that. because I recently spoke at USC. Dr. Pedro Noguera from the Dean of the Rossier School of Education had me speak to his faculty and staff, um, professors and students. And it was really emotional. He was my professor at UC Berkeley. And we talked about racial equity and justice in, in the education arena. And in the afternoon, I was I had the privilege of presenting to the master's cohort for the marriage and family therapy mm -hmm. master's students and some undergrad students. And it was really beautiful to see a bunch of Latinas in there that are bilingual and that are really i mean people were crying we were hugging each other they were so appreciative that my message was i need you i need you in this field we need more latinos we need more people of color that are multilingual for identification um because i often wonder where would my life have gone had i had independent of race because i gotta say that my two of my therapists that i've gone to over the last two years are white gay men who are extremely culturally competent mm -hmm. and amazing therapists one in emdr and one in parts work internal family systems and ifs but i often wonder what would have happened had i been that 14 year old kid again and had a therapist that was trained in culturally competent modalities and had at least the sensitivity um, that if she wasn't multilingual or bilingual was willing to bring in an interpreter. And I don't think I would have gone down that rabbit hole that I did. I felt as if I was just a paycheck. So that's a great segue into the piece of the book that I'd love to share. I would love to hear it. Awesome, especially with you know the, the name of the podcast, Healthcare Untold, because one of my dreams is to be able to speak at conferences with mental health professionals around the importance of a career pathway, uh, starting in community college, even in high school, to give students an opportunity to introduction to psychology 101 in high school opportunities to understand what different modalities are as career pathways so that folks can, um, one, fill a gap and a big need that exists in our community in the mental health space, but also to inspire others um, and let them know the impact they can have in people's lives. Saving of lives. That's the most important thing we can do. 
<laughs> bueno, here we go. Here we go. And I hope you don't mind me going back and forth from English to Spanish. Pero... Not at all. <laughs> Gracias. All right, here we go. This is from page 101 of my book, I'm Not Broken. The therapist shook each of our hands with indifference, directing us to sit down. Ama and I sat awkwardly on the velvet couch. The therapist sat in the black leather chair. She lacked the good grace often found in Latino culture to help others with smiles on our faces. She wouldn't even make eye contact with Ama when speaking to her. Instead, she fumbled through papers, handing some for me, handing some to me for Amara sign without explaining what they said. Do we fill out this section? I asked, pointing to a document. Just fill it out for her as best you can and tell her to sign it, she responded, not looking at me either. Once the paperwork was out of the way, she told Ama, as I translated, Jesus will need to come see me once per week after school. You have no need to come back. If I have any documents that you need to sign, I will send them with Jesus and he can bring them back to our next appointment. Do you have any questions? I hated that she was calling me Jesus when I already introduced myself as Jesse. So my family calls me Jesse, actually Jesse. No one's ever called me Jesus in my family. So it's not as if I'm trying to anglicize my name or ashamed of my culture. It's just that no one in my life, by the way, has ever called me Jesus, unless I'm in trouble, right? Growing up, so, or dealing with HR. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, I, hated my, I hated that she was calling me Jesus when I'd already introduced myself as Jesse. Yes, I do. How do we make sure he gets better? How can we help him? Will we have a family therapy session? How will you give me updates on how he is doing if you don't have an interpreter? Ama asked with tears in her eyes as I interpreted and her hand held mine. If I need to see you, I will let you know. I don't need an interpreter. Jesus here seems to be doing a good job at it. My meetings with Jesus will be confidential. I will not be discussing the things we talk about with you unless he decides he wants to hurt himself or someone else. As I said, I will let you know when we need to meet again, she told my mom, now looking directly into her eyes as though trying to intimidate her. I could sense Ama tensing, wanting to lash back. So we will not have family therapy sessions? Ama asked, wiping the quickly drying tears from her eyes. No, we will not. I need to get to know Jesus first. If I have any questions, I will ask them through Jesus. But he's been lying and keeping things from me for years. I see you're getting paid $125 per hour according to the documents I just signed. I'm sure you can afford an interpreter. The state does not pay for interpreters. And unfortunately, you can't afford it, she told Ama. Looking at me, the therapist said, we're out of time as we have gone over our 45 minutes. I will see you here every Monday after school for our sessions. Now, goodbye and have a good day. She stood up, walked to the door and opened it, letting us know it was time for us to go. Ama got up, frustrated and went to shake her hands and say thank you. But the therapist dismissed her gesture, her gesture 
which Meiramah grabbed the woman's hands with both her own as she stood crying in the doorway. Please, please help my son. He's a good, intelligent boy. I don't want him to get lost and turn to a life of gangs and drugs like so many other kids. Please help him. Amah was now sobbing, and she went to hug the therapist, who quickly released her from who quickly released her hand from Amah's grip and put her arms up while stepping back. This hurt my feelings, and I sadly started to translate what Amah was saying when the therapist cut me off. No need to interpret, Jesus. It's clear to me that you come from an extremely emotional family. It's no wonder she stopped herself and then went on, I'll see you on Monday. Now you have to go so I can prepare for my next appointment. Ama and I left. It was 1988 and my mom was making California's minimum wage at the time, $4.25 $4 per hour. Can you imagine? How many days I'd have to work to pay for just one hour with her? Shit, 45 minutes. It's not even a full hour. She must be rich. I just hope she can really help you, mijo. Ama said, kissing the top of my head as we sat at the bus stop waiting to go home. And that was our first therapy appointment. Wow. And I just want the listening audience to listen to this book with his voice. It's, it's so powerful. And, you know, I think how many of our children go through this and, you know, it's 1988, you said, uh, but you know, 2022, you know, we're not too far from that in terms of not having the population of therapists that really understand our communities and the struggles that uh, families go through, particularly that still, whole It still issue. happens. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many kids go through exactly the same thing. Yeah. Even for me as an adult right now, I, I have Kaiser <laughs> and I'll put Kaiser on blast. For me to find a first time appointment with Kaiser took me, I think about a month and a half to two months, right at the beginning of COVID. Well, before COVID. And I was asking for an EMDR specialist. They said, no, they don't have anybody. Explain the EMDR, because I think many people may not know that. So EMDR is a specific modality that is called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. Mm -hmm. It was founded by a, I forgot her name, uh, it was a woman therapist or a woman psychologist, and it's used, it started to be used predominantly for um, military veterans coming back from combat that were dealing with some severe, what is called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't like to use the word disorder in PTSD. I prefer PTSI, which is injury. Because I believe that when you say post-traumatic post stress disorder, it puts the blame on the individual. When you talk about PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury, it lets me know that my injury can be healed. Right. And there's an opportunity for me to work on that healing. So there's a bunch of different modalities. One is called brain spotting, which is like um, EMDR on steroids. And what it really does, it's a type of modality where you use eye movement, tapping, and 
imaging processes to desensitize certain tra traumatic experiences. So for me, in trauma-informed care means that I'm able to talk about experiences without reliving them. That's beautiful. And trauma-informed care is where we teach uh, providers how to work with people with trauma. And the important part that it's not about that person, it's about what happened to them. And so, um, so that's really important, Jesse. It sounds like, you know, through your process, you've had to become a mental health professional. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, you know, I'm in recovery and I, I sponsor a lot of people in recovery. I have a sponsor and I'm not against, you know, mental health therapy. Um, it's, it's been great for me throughout my entire journey. Um, and I had to learn early on and it's sad because no child, no 14 year old child should be left alone to maneuver the mental health system by themselves for them and their family. Resources should have been made available to mm -hmm. assist my family, myself, my mother to be able to navigate mental health accountability should have been made available to oversight and accountability and at least given us information to say if you're not happy with your therapist you can change here's a number where you can call the state you can report any challenges that you're having we will investigate and or we will place you within a new therapist immediately yeah, you can fire your therapist. You can fire your therapist. I mean, people right. know that. You can but, fire. You, but when you're a 14-year-old kid of course, of course. or an immigrant parent That's and right. assigned by the state, you don't know that you have those choices. That's right. That's right. And so my mom felt, you know, being an immigrant from Mexico, the, the principals in school and doctors, those are the authority figures, <laughs> right? That like you rarely ever question, especially a doctor. Right. And so... We didn't know we had options Four years with this therapist oh my that I just read the blurb about. She knew about the sex work. She knew about the drug use. She knew about the binge drinking. She knew about everything that I was doing and not once recommended drug and alcohol treatment, not once tried to meet with my parents, not once did anything for, fam for the family unit and I shouldn't have gone down that rabbit hole of be because I was overlooked by state sanctioned mental health services. You know, you'd Good be enough. you'd be really proud, Jesse. You know, through as you have had to, you know, kind of find your path and uh, become so great in your life. You know, you've gone through, you've recovered, you've you're in recovery. Recovery is a lifetime event every day. Um, and uh, you'd be so proud of some of the Latino organizations that have developed to serve you when you were 14. So you'd be very proud that there are some developments in, in the area. But I have to say, I worked at the federal level in federal government and local government. Um, and um, mental health and addiction services were separated. Yep. And so it's just been incredible through the last three decades that finally 
they're, they're talking about behavioral health and not just addiction or mental health. And I have to say, I've worked with professionals who didn't want to be doing both of those. They really wanted that mental health path versus the addiction path. And the addiction path had a community of people, you know, look at AA. It was really peer-driven. And then, of course, on the mental health side, it was license-driven. And so in the development of new services, I think you'd be very proud in the Latino community of what, what has been accomplished. I and, cannot uh, wait. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I know. I want I want to introduce you to these some of the organizations that are doing some incredible work in the Bay Area. I can't wait. Instituto Familiar de la Raza. It's when I hear these stories, well, like, as I mentioned, when I was at USC and that they had a bilingual program um, to encourage um, multilingual services and in, in, in therapy. I thought, wow, this is amazing. But you hit it right on the head. I wrote an op-ed piece in the LA Times that said the title is when my life came apart, I struggled to find therapy. Yeah. And it was published uh, June, I can't see it from here, uh, June 5th or June 6th, to 2022. And I talked about how too often mental health and substance abuse operate in silos. Yes. They, they, they do not, um, and I think that that's a big issue especially if you want to, if you bring in trauma, because oftentimes those of us that have had to deal with substance abuse issues experience trauma during our substance abuse if we didn't experience it prior. Oftentimes in our using, in our binges, we have experienced traumatic events. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that you could address substance, I don't think it's beneficial to, a, to not address substance abuse, mental health, and trauma together. And luckily, I'm seeing more therapists across uh, the country. I'm hoping that it'll pick up globally that are, um, that are advocating for this. One Latina is Teresa Chapa, which I'd love to introduce you to. Um, she, I believe, was at SAMHSA for a while. Um, she's now in Southern California, and she's creating career pathways for um, Latinos and people of color to enter the uh, mental health space uh, through culturally competent, gender affirming and multilingual lens. That's beautiful. And that's exactly what we need in our communities. So let's talk about the book because, you know, being an author and um, is a hard road, you know? <laughs> uh, one is that, and this is why I, on the podcast, I really want to encourage our listening audience to pick up his book and or listen to it. I think the listening part on Audible or any other platform is just incredible. Uh, your book, I Am Not Broken by Jesse Leon. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about that struggle and what your hopes are with your book i mean because i think you've captured so many beautiful stories of resiliency um and um power of taking over on your life despite all the things that happened to you in your life um and that's a beautiful story right we redemption is so uh incredible to do and and people can they really can redeem themselves 
but they need that help and support of foundation. But you wrote a book about that. And I just wanted to have the listening audience, uh, you know, hear a little bit about, uh, you know, I know you just got an award, several awards, San Diego, <laughs> from San Diego, being one of the, being born in San Diego. I'm so proud of you. Uh, but tell us a little bit about that, because I know that's a, it's hard to uh, publish and get your book out there. So, and thank you. And yes, I did win the uh, San Diego Memoir Writer of the Year Award. I've gotten some great reviews from NPR. I made the short list of the New York Times. Um, it's It's been an amazing journey. And I need to remember constantly why I decided to write the book. And remember to leave my ego out of it um because it's not about ego for me you know in recovery we talk about ego as easing god out or um and so or easing grace out if you have a problem with the word god some people say easing grace out and not giving myself grace or other people grace for me it was about trying to create impact and telling my story so that my scars can be turned into hope for others. And so, but the publishing journey was not easy. The writing itself, so let me first talk about the publishing journey um, and why I wrote it the way I did. So my book covers many different topics and it's about the complexity of my humanity which I think will be will be received differently depending on who is reading it. So you may pick up certain things in my story that someone else may pick up. Earlier today, I was in an interview with a nonprofit from the Bay Area and um, my friend George Galvis, uh, who heads up a nonprofit named Courage, he caught on to the fact that most of my support system was women until Z, a character in my book, in my junior or senior year, I think it was senior year, um, there's a whole scene where this young Chicano uh, San Diego State student basically confronted me about my behavior and how he really became the first male figure. And then my sponsor in recovery played a big role. So it's funny how he was the first person that's, that's mentioned that. And I say that because we all have different, we all have these types of stories. Um, and depending on who the reader is, it's gonna have a different impact. Um, so I decided to write the book initially without the idea of publishing it. I wanted to capture not just my story of resilience, redemption, moving from surviving to thriving, not just mine, I wanted to capture three generations of both sides of the family, which in the editing process and the final product of I'm Not Broken, I think we did exceptionally well when we had the vignettes of both sides of my family from our grandparents and talking about the family history, not just intergenerational trauma, but resilience and surviving and eventually thriving in the immigrant journey from the Sierras of Mexico, of, of, of Durango, or my mom's side of Sinaloa, 
or even my my great grandparents, which came from China, and my grandpa was born in Mexico, of full blooded Chinese parents, right? And so I wanted to capture the histories of and stories of resilience and survival, so that the next generation can have a document that they can turn back to and have some pride and strength and something that they can call upon of generations worth to inspire them to keep going just one more day. If I think I have it bad right now, I can't even imagine what my great grandma experienced, what my grandparents experienced. And so that was the initial initial intent. And it just took off from there. I I had people encourage me as a public speaker when I would speak to write my book, to, to, to get it published. And I had a hard time finding an agent. I had somebody say that um, my writing was mediocre at best and that no one would ever wanna publish my story because it talks about abuse from a male perspective. And it's funny because, you know, when, sometimes I'm like, well, look at me now. <laughs> I am a published author. And I was blessed to, after I received hundreds of rejection letters from agents not willing to represent me in the literary world, a friend of mine introduced me to somebody in the movie industry. And that 20-minute pitch meeting became a two-and-a-half-hour meeting with tears and laughter. And they asked me, where are you with publishing your memoir? I responded with, I can't find an agent. And I got teary-eyed. I said, I'm getting rejection letter after rejection letter. They said, well, we wanna do something with this, but first we need, to work, we need to have you work on getting it published. We're gonna introduce you to somebody. And they happened to introduce me to a Latino a man named Leopoldo Gut who's worked on a few book to film projects. And he happened to work on the Jeffrey Epstein uh, series on Netflix around sex trafficking. And he read my book within two to three days. Within two weeks, I had met his literary agent because he's also an author. And this white British woman who lives in New York and works with DeFiori, her name is Lisa Gallagher, decided to represent me. Next thing you know, three months later or four months later, I'm in a bidding war between <laughs> Penguin Random House and Harper Collins. That's what you need to be. That's where you and, need to be. And you know, it's, it's so to any of the listeners out there that are considering writing a memoir that are in the journey that have maybe written it already and are getting rejection letters, don't give up. That's right. Please don't give up. We all have stories to tell. We can self-publish or we can publish with a big publisher or a small publisher. Don't give up. Our stories are valid. That's and right. I, from, from somebody who was told that my writing was mediocre and the reviews that I'm getting are just stellar of people telling me, thank you, Jesse, for telling your story. I wouldn't have been making the impact that I'm having on different people's lives had I given up. And that's really a core of your book, right? It's not giving up. 
um, and, you know, really, uh, really getting going through that and going through the pain of it. Uh, this does not come without pain and suffering. Um, but that's like what you said, you know, uh, generational for us. Um, that's how our families uh, really struggled through um, all of the oppression and discrimination throughout this country and working those four 25-hour uh, per hour jobs and, you know, surviving and then raising all of their children. So mm-hmm. I just want to uh, let you have a couple of last comments to the listening audience. Cause you know, I want to give a big uh, really uh, just, uh, just asking the, the audience to really pick up your book or to listen to it on audible or any other platform. <laughs> Thank you. And that would really help. Um, what I'm going through right now in the publishing world is the book is getting great reviews. And most importantly, what, what fills my spirit is when someone shoots me a DM, a message on Instagram, um, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter saying thank you. Um, I related to your book. Um, you give, You gave me hope. And, and it's those, those moments where I feel that the risk that I took, I'm an executive. I've worked at JP Morgan, Bank of America. I've worked at the federal and state government level. I've managed over a billion dollar worth of investments for affordable housing and social impact. There was a lot of fear in throwing, my, in, in, in throwing it out there the way I did afraid that I was gonna shut doors um, in my professional career, especially in the conservative world of finance. Um, But it was a risk I wanted to take because I really wanted to help inspire others and demonstrate that you can go from living in trauma to being triumphant. And I went from being homeless, strung out, on crystal meth and heroin, after years of sex trafficking and sex abuse, suicidal ideations, to getting clean and sober, going to community college, going to UC Berkeley, graduating from Harvard. And that journey is one of redemption and resilience to show others that, hey, you can do it too. And we're not alone. But what I would love is that they're listeners of your podcast you know, to pick up the book, the audiobook, yes, the audiobook is amazing. The Spanish version comes out, I believe, in January. Uh, it was pushed from November to January. Um, the title is No Estoy Roto in Spanish. But pick up the audiobook. And if you like it, do a Goodreads review, do an Audible or whatever other platform that you purchase it at. Please do a review. It would help. We need to support debut authors especially debut authors that really take a risk and get as vulnerable as I did in my book to inspire others. The last thing I wanted to talk about was this topic that's been coming up a lot about um, what does masculinity mean to you, Jesse? And what is sacred masculinity? It came up earlier because I talk a lot about my identity development in the book. I went from being a nerdy loving kid to throwing on that hyper-masculine identity of machismo, which protected me. 
you know, we talk about toxic masculinity and machismo being a negative, but the machismo actually protected me for survival when I didn't know what else to do. And so the beautiful part of my story that I hope the readers pick up on is how so many other people, it wasn't my journey alone. It was a community journey. It was a journey of people who loved me and cared enough for me, sometimes even strangers, that pointed me in the right direction and cared enough to listen and point me in the right direction to make sure that I succeed and taught me how to love myself again and come to terms with the Jesse that I wanted to be all along. And which the sacred masculinity to me is being able to be the man that I am because I identify as, as a man. I'm a gay Latino man, gay Chicano man. That I'm able to support others in their journey with compassion, empathy, understanding, and not view other men as threatening because of my traumas. And that I'm able to walk through fear. And that to me is giving myself the grace and giving others the grace to walk through those fears with me. There's two acronyms or three for fear. You know, one of them is forget everything and run or face everything and recover, right? That we use in recovery. But one of the things that's helped me a lot with trauma is when I encounter a fearful situation, I need to look at fear as false events appearing real. And sometimes it's not real what I'm perceiving. My perception may be skewed. And a lot of times miracles in my life are that shift in perception to allow me to continue to heal and make sure that my emotions and my reasoning are in balance. So I ask the reader to please go on the journey, to listeners to please go on the journey with me and if you like the book, please, please, please um, write a review. It would really help and encourage others to get a copy. That's beautiful, Jesse. On behalf of Healthcare Untold, lots of love to you. I'm going to send you a big old hug right now. <laughs> <laughs> and Jesse, Jesse uh, Leon, I Am Not Broken, the author of I Am Not Broken. Pick it up, put it on your earphones. Uh, it's a beautiful book. And thank you so much for being so brave uh, to write your book. Thank you so Hi, much. Barbara. <laughs> Gracias a ti. Thank you to Healthcare Untold, your podcast, your team for having me here. I hope I wasn't too long winded. I hope Not I at all. Uh... Beautiful. Every word is so important <laughs> that you give us. So thank you, Gracias. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold.